is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening, everybody. Welcome along to the Weekend Variety Wireless, the Saturday edition, another, another edition, beginning at 8pm tomorrow night. Ah, tomorrow night. I managed to catch uh, Michael Portillo, former Cabinet Minister under Thatcher, and now he's become a bit of a, a media figure. He's presenting a thing uh, about news, uh, about England and its trains, and he goes all over the place. Starting next Saturday, uh, 8.30 on the Living Channel on Sky, that's Sky Channel 17, but it's a good excuse to talk to him about a whole lot of other stuff as well. That'll be tomorrow night. Advice to politicians today. Ah... Uh. Try to be yourself, I think, is the best advice. Why is it so hard for politicians? Yes. <laughs> Why is it so hard? All righty, coming up later on this evening. The end of the world as we know it. Ha, 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 ha. There was a thing called the Carrington event. It happened in 1859. Such an outrageous thing. It got a name. Uh, it was a solar coronal mass ejection, This a sun fart hit us. It hit us hard. We haven't been hit by one that big since. But think of all the electricity that we use now. How many more wires are there? In 1859, it melted telegraph wires. Uh, what might happen? We have an expert, Professor Nair from Auckland University, Nirmal Nair, uh, who, who specialises in this sort of thing. He'll discuss what might happen. That'll be after about 10.30 uh, this evening. Speaking of sciencey stuff, lots of it this hour as usual. This is our science hour dedicated astronomy with Grant Christie. Next up, science report. We need a physicist, and I think we've got one at the other end of the commercial break. His name's Sean Handy. Good evening, everybody, and a special hello if you're listening to the podcast. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Physicist, physicist, is there a physicist in the house? We need a physicist. <laughs> uh, we've, oh, there's one at the end of the line. That, yeah, hi. That's handy. Uh, Sean Handy, how are you? Uh, good, Graham. How are you? Great. Uh, first up, um, a subatomic particle. Uh, it was subatomic particle of the year last year, and, and I think every year. It's an amazing thing. It's so small, it could... Um, uh, you, the only way to stop it, apparently, is if you have a wall of lead as thick as the width of our solar system, you might be able to stop them. Um, they come, th Nothing stops them. They're very, very hard to catch, and they've got an amazing history. They seem to be there, don't they, Sean? Yeah, no, that's right. No, neut neutrinos, they're, they're quite, a, quite a mysterious particle. They're often, often called the ghost particle because mm. um, they just don't interact very strongly with matter. Um, you know, so the word neutrino um, means that they're electrically neutral. That's, one, that's where the word came from. Um, and being electrically neutral, they don't in interact with, with us via electromagnetic um, interactions uh, in the way that light might or, or, or other types of charged particles do. Yeah. Um, and they've got a very, very weak mass, um, very, very small mass, uh, and so, so they don't easily collide with things. So, yeah, they, they're these ghost particles. I mean, you know... We've 
billions of them are passing through our bodies all the time mm. um, and we, we never notice. So very hard to detect. And we, we kind of mostly know they're there by just sort of doing the sums on where the energy's going. Um, you know, if you look at a... If you, if you study, um, you know, uh, subatomic particles colliding, um, you can kind of, you know, reconstruct the collisions a bit like you could, you could sort of try and work out... Um, you could run a, a game of pool in reverse and watch how the balls sort of bounce off each other and, and, and figure out where they came from. So we, we try and play that sort of game with subatomic particles and we can see that sometimes there's just energy that appears to disappear right. and we can see there's no charged particles being produced but only a very small amount of mass that's that, that almost undetectable um, that's changing and so that's, that's, that's the neutrino. Um, and one of the big puzzles when I was a PhD student, so in the 1990s, was that there seemed to be missing neutrinos. Um, we could, you know, we could do on, we could do the maths for what was going on in the sun, and it predicted that there should be um, a large amount of what are called electron neutrinos. So, there, so what we know about is there's three types of neutrinos: electron neutrinos, tau neutrinos, um, and muon uh, neutrinos, and they they pair up with other uh, subatomic particles. And so the sun's supposed to produce an awful lot of these electron neutrinos and when we built these detectors so these are these are big things that are buried underground to try and capture you know as you said um big dense materials trying to capture trying to stop just a handful of neutrinos yeah. um we, we we weren't seeing enough um it, actually you know, we're it, only seeing... it's the strangest telescope in the world isn't it it's full of this weird li- liquid and it's basically a massive swimming pool under the earth trying to grab <laughs> these things that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it's the weirdest way to do uh, to do um, observing, right? Is actually dig a hole and get in the hole. <laughs> so pretty, pretty strange. And we and we just weren't measuring enough for these electron neutrinos that were coming out of the coming out of the sun. And so it turned out that what what happens is they change they change their nature as they move. So as the so the sun is putting these neutrinos out, um, and they change into other types of neutrinos as they move. So these three neutrinos um, actually oscillate back and forth. Uh, between each other and so actually the fact that we, were, we weren't seeing enough electron neutrinos was what was happening as they were as they were traveling from the sun to the earth they were changing into other types of neutrinos so that was a that was a pretty big moment in physics actually um and uh and still quite a significant result now so at the same time there were these experiments being done um that seem to suggest now after after sort of crunching the numbers um on these experiments from from um, almost 30 years ago now, um, uh, it's a hint that there might be a fourth type of neutrino. Now, that would really be game on for particle physics. Um, you know, if you've been following what's, what's been happening in CERN, sure, they found the Higgs boson, um, but we kind of knew that had to be there. And they haven't found anything unexpected. So we spent, you know, a couple of billion dollars on this big particle accelerator, mm. and actually we just saw exactly what we thought we were going to saw before we built it. Um, so there's quite a few disappointed uh, and slightly embarrassed physicists out there. And so any kind of hint that there might be something new going on um, is quite exciting. And so there's a, there's a bit of a hint in this 30-year-old data that suggests maybe there's a fourth type of neutrino and that would be that would be game on for particle physics. That um, really is basic. That's um, that's at the fundamentals, isn't it, of all of our physics? Knowing how many yep. things are out there and what they're made of, and the neutrino yep. is just such an established part of what the universe yep. is. It'd be amazing yeah. to find another one hiding yeah, behind the piano. 
and this would almost certainly tell us there's a whole bunch of other particles out there that are related to this fourth neutrino. Um, so, so gosh, it would be exciting. Um, but so far, everything's, everything comes in threes in particle physics. That's the magic number. Um, so if, if there was a fourth, that would, that would really shake up our theory of what's going on. Oh, okay. So we'll have to wait and, wait and see from other experiments. I think people will be able to Google this. I remember one of the astronomy pictures of the day uh, that Grant Christie pointed me to, he'll be up shortly, um, was a picture of the sun at night. Right. Like how? And it it was um, the collected neutrinos from the sun, from this observatory, and there it was, the sun at night. Yep, so if you're you're wearing neutrino glasses, (laughs) um, goggles, then, yeah, you can look through the Earth yeah. The, um, in theory, you could look through the Earth at the sun uh, because, of course, the Earth barely stops any neutrinos. Yeah. So. Okay. Uh, how we th- hear things in noisy environments and the keen hearing of young musicians. Yeah, so this is, this is an interesting um, new set of experiments. So, of course, you know, we're all getting used to the fact that computers can now, you know, hear us and, and understand our voices. And, you know, many of us will have smart devices in our home that... Um, that you can talk to. Um, But actually one thing that we've still got an advantage over machines is the ability in a really noisy environment to pick out a voice. Um, So if you've been at a party or you're in a noisy cafe, actually you're doing, by listening to to whoever you're talking to, you're doing something that that computers can't yet do. (laughs) So, you know, it's nice to have, have something um, that we've still got an advantage over, over machines in. But they've been studying how we do it. And, and one of the intriguing things, one of the intriguing results that, that has come up is that musicians, trained musicians, are actually better at picking out voices or picking out noises from noisy environments. And you yeah. can imagine why that would be useful for a musician. If you're in an orchestra, um, you know, you're going to be listening to particular instruments that, that you're going to be trying to play in, in sync with or in harmony with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that would be a useful skill for a musician for sure. Now, the, one of the questions is, is this something that they learn or is it just that in order to be a musician, you've got to have this? Ah, uh, right? chicken if, if egg. You, yeah, if you can't do it, you're not going to make it as a musician, right? You'll be playing to your own tune yeah. um, and won't be able to hear what's going on. So, so um, some recent experiments, they, they did looking at kids, who, um, uh, some of whom are musicians and some of them who aren't. Um, so these are these are um, kids in their early teens, uh, and they found that the that the strength of the effect um, goes away. Um, so that particular effect. So when you look at at, at kids early on, um, they they don't have that differentiation and ability. Yeah. And so this is this is this is suggesting that it's that it's learnt, um, which is kind of good news. If, if for example, if you're someone who's got a cochlear implant, implant um, it means that. You know, maybe you haven't been hearing uh, well for a very long time, and you get this implant. It means that you've got potentially got the ability to learn and to pick up this new skill to yeah. hear, to pick out voices. Um, but they did find some differences. So that there are some differences in between the musicians and the non-musicians, suggesting that maybe there's a little bit of, you know, maybe there's some predisposition towards being being able to do this, but certainly not as strong as the adults. So it would seem we all have this ability should we choose to, to learn it, um, to, to be able to pick out uh, voices from noisy environments. Of course, you know, 
you and me are getting on <laughs> and uh, and our ears are not functioning as well as they used to. So we also lose it, of course, as we get older and our hearing deteriorates. Right, I'm, yeah. still, I'm certainly noticing that myself these days that I find it harder to, to listen to people in noisy environments. I, I've, I've always hated a noisy cafe. And I, so yeah. I, I'm not accepting the, um, the ageism on this one. God, it's <laughs> people build, build a cafe. Why don't they try and make it extra noisy? It's just crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. There's a wonderful exercise. I think was related to this, an exercise that um, music students get at a very, very, very early age, and that's a box full of things, and you shake right. it. You shake it. Right, and, right. Okay, I didn't name everything that's in that box just by the sounds oh, as you rattle right. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, so again, you know, aptitude versus training. Um, yeah. So, so probably a bit of both. That's, that's usually the way it is in life. Yeah. And there, I think there are massive, well, there are massive, huge, empty paddocks of knowledge uh, that we're yet to discover about music. It's just such a strange yeah. thing. Um, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and finally, uh, let's look at what running does to your brain. Yeah. So this, I was quite, quite interested in this. I... I've been um, taken up running in the last four or five years. Um, again, trying to fight the fight the aging of the body, but uh, current, currently currently got an Achilles uh, uh, problem, so, I'm, so oh. I've got my got my feet up at the moment, trying to rest that. But uh, yeah, so I, some interesting research that's come out about um, you know what does it do to your brain? What what happens to you when you're out running? And certainly, uh, I've been out running, and you know it's it's kind of it's hard to get started, right? It's the, you know that first. First kilometre is, is never. I, I never find it very fun. No. But um, actually, you know, once once you're up and going and you sort of you you warmed up, you can actually feel you can actually feel very comfortable. Um, and and it can be quite a pleasant experience. That and, first plateau, actually, isn't it? It's a it's yeah a state you get in. Yeah. No, that's right. And 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 um, you know, from time to time, you'll get that uh, that you get that euphoric feeling. Yeah. Um, you yeah. get a sudden rush, and you and you actually feel very very good. Um, so scientists have been trying to figure out, well, what, what's going on? And, and at least they've discovered some of, the, some of the benefits. This is quite hard research to do. Um, you know, they want to actually look at what's happening in people's brains. And while we've got good technology for doing that these days, that's the, the MRI machine. These things weigh, you know, uh, several tons. <laughs> so it's pretty hard to take one running with you. Right. Um, so most of these studies um, uh, are done, you know, comparing runners and non-runners when they're lying flat. Right, so you're trying to guess at sort of changes and and um, and how the brain works that, that that have occurred because of the running. Right, it's hard to look at what's going on in brains during the running. Um, but one of the things they've found um, is that uh, so so during running, you actually and afterwards, you actually produce an enzyme that helps kind of um, clean up some of the toxins. You know, you, you know next, the next day after your 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 run, you'll feel a bit stiff and sore. And, and it takes a couple of days sometimes to recover, mm-hmm. um, and and so that you know during that time your body's producing enzymes that help clean up um, uh, some of the chemicals that are being produced during that prolonged exercise, mm-hmm. and some of these enzymes that you, that your body produces actually clean up some of the stress, um, some of the molecules that cause stress, uh, and so this has been thought this people you know the researchers think that this might be um, what causes some of the Benefits, the mental health benefits that runners seem to uh, experience, because it is known to be um, good for mental health. Yeah. Um, it can ease some of the symptoms of depression, and so it does seem that there's a that there may be 
they've maybe discovered a, a biochemical mechanism whereby that could be um, interacting with your brain and helping helping reduce some of those um, those chemicals that your body produces that go on to cause stress. Um, so that was an interesting one for me, um, and and. Uh, and I guess I'm going to have to get out running <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, uh, strap up the Achilles. Man, I, I really take my hat off to anyone who is depressed that manages to get over that first, ironically, hurdle of yep. giving it a go. God, that must yeah. be so hard, but so good for yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, it's not going to. It doesn't. It's not a cure all for everything. No, no. Um, but but Tough. it does seem there are some there are some benefits from. Yep. Um, from getting out and doing that. And I'm sure other forms of exercise as well. And um, I think it's produce. a very interesting thing to study, particularly in human beings. We're famously generalists. We can uh, eat anything just about. Uh, we can li- live on most continents. Um, but there's one thing we do specialise in. We, we gold medal against all of the other animal kingdom at running. We can outrun anything. Not speed, but duration. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's quite remarkable, isn't it? That, yeah. that, that, that you know, it's, and it's interesting to speculate as to why that. Yeah. Why? What, where did that? Where did that ability come from? Yeah. Um, because yeah, over long distances. Yeah. We 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 are it. Oh, um, yeah, Hamish. So I Hamish Carter was investigated by the SPCA to see if his dog was all right. I mean, it's the longest <laughs> yeah. bloody run in the world. Yeah, and actually, one one of the things I did come across when I was looking at the um, uh, looking at the, the the science of running was actually there are quite substantial changes. People who do those ultra ultra marathons, yeah. there are quite substantial changes um, in their in their brain. In fact, right. you can you lose brain mass. <laughs> and I guess you you know. You lose mass overall. That's one of the ways your body responds to this very long distance running, is of course um, trimming you down. Um, but also, as part of that, you do lose um, uh, brain mass. You recover. So actually, if you oh. if you take it easy for a while, you you, you bounce back. Um, but that was an interesting interesting side effect. Did you pop your Achilles? Uh, no, I haven't. It's not a pop. It's just a um, uh, it's a slightly sore uh, Achilles. It sort of I I did a. Ran the um, Hawke's Bay half marathon. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, last month. No, and, we're not uh, interested anymore. We're only interested <laughs> if it was a biggie, like a popping around. No, stop no, your no, whining. No, just, stop your, stop yeah. your whining. We'll do. Okay. <laughs> Sean, get, get out of bed. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Hey, good one. Good luck with uh, Achilles. And uh, thank you very much Thanks, for Sam. the science report. Fabulous stuff. Cheers. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. <laughs> Astronomy Today with Dr. Grant Christie. Grant Christie here. Hello, Grant. Hi, Graham. Uh, thank you very much, Mike Puru, for filling in last week on the hosty side of things. And uh, for this week's astronomy feature, we have a few things, as we usually do, some complimentary links to images and videos. Uh, on the on the weekend variety wireless webpage, uh, there's um, there's a little video of the sunspots on the sun at the moment, and you can see them coming round as the sun rotates. 
this is unusual for this time in the solar cycle. That's right. Well, we're sort of pretty close to solar minimum. Uh, the solar, the sun has this sort of uh, very famous 11-year cycle of activity where it gets high activity. You expect to see lots of sunspots, solar flares, mm. uh, that sort of stuff. And then it goes, fades around day and goes a bit quiet. And uh, solar astronomers can't really predict with any great certainty what the sun's going to do uh, next month, little whatever. But, I mean, this 11-year cycle's been known for centuries mm. uh, and it's fairly well established but some of the cycles are strong some of them are weak and the sun's in a strange sort of place at the moment it had a very weak solar maximum that seemed to last too long and now it's in a sort of a sort of a low point but even so uh, there's still a lot of activity uh, people who are interested in aurora and stuff are seeing a lot of aurora mm. still uh, ian griffin at uh, otago museum is uh, sort of nationally prominent in in uh, publicizing aurora with his photos and flights to the south pole and all that sort of stuff um so so there is unusual amount of activity for a solar minimum I mean, now there's this great big sunspot group that's appeared uh, that's you know in terms of size it's actually bigger than the earth mm. uh, and uh, when do you see those comparisons when you have the earth pictured uh, either alongside or in front of the sun uh, for scale's sake it's always shocking yes and 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 it, it looks like a big black spot in fact it's it's ve it's still very hot i mean the surface of the sun's about around about 6,000 degrees Celsius. Um, sunspots are just a little bit cooler, but because they're, you know, they're cooled off and they're a little bit sort of effectively fainter in the wavelengths that our eyes see, they look like sort of sort of black spots. Um, but they, they, they're magnetic storms on the sun, basically, and the, this magnetism is sucking out sort of energy that would otherwise go into heating the, uh, sun, the, the sun surface at that point, and that creates that sort of deficit of temperature and makes them look a bit darker. Mm. But so, they, so they're, um, and they can't be predicted in advance. Uh, you know, astronomers just have to wait until they're there. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's quite, uh, I was quite surprised to see it. And later on this evening, we are going to be speaking with a computer and electrical engineering engineer from Auckland University. What would happen if a Carrington event hit the Earth? This is related to what you're talking about. It's solar activity. You get these um, coronal mass ejections where it goes, oof, and uh, uh, it looks like a big flame is just <laughs> bursting towards us uh, in our direction and fire stuff at us but they can get they come in different flavors and they come in different um intensities right up to you know x class we dodged one in 2012 yeah, yeah so they sort of like um, I, I sort of liken them uh, to an explosion on the surface of the sun uh that you know puts a huge amount of energy into material there that gets blown off the surface and it's kind of like um a shotgun blast of stuff passing out through the solar system uh, oh. in a trajectory it travels very usually about um uh i think five six hundred kilometers per second mm -hmm. something in that order i mean it's it takes it's a few really, days to it's hit really us. moving and yes that's right it takes it typically about three to four days to cross from the sun to the earth and of course something like that 
is a pretty directional event, and so it may or may not hit the Earth. So radio astronom- um, solar astronomers are keeping an eye on it. They've now got lots of satellites around the sun, about seven or eight, that can track the trajectory of these uh, coronal mass ejections as they come towards us and can say, well, we think this one's going to give the Earth a glancing blow or it'll hit face on or whatever. And they have to alert the people who control satellites because that the uh, charged particles uh, that are coming towards us uh, create an electric current that can actually destroy the electronics in satellites. So most satellites are hardened. I mean, some of these satellites are worth a billion dollars. Mm. Um, so they're usually hardened on one side, so the controllers turn them around so that the sort of the, the hardened bit is facing towards where the uh, these particles are coming from to protect the electronics inside. So it's actually, you know, there's a lot of management goes into it. And uh, But fortunately now we do have this sort of system where, the you know, you can actually see these things coming. We, mm. the, the Earth doesn't really get surprised by them. Um, but... Uh, you know, in terms of what you mentioned about the Carrington event of 1859, which was a huge solar flare, essentially, that sent stuff to Earth and, you know, it sort of caused a major meltdown of, uh, you know, the early telegraphic wire system mm. that was stretched across different parts of the Earth, the United States. And and we've not experienced one of that sort of intensity since our reliance on anything to do with electricity since. That's right. And, and you know, and we don't know. I mean... You know, who knows? One could happen tomorrow. So, uh, you know, we, we just cannot predict the sun well mm. enough. Um, there's also satellites around the sun that are probing the interior as well. And so they're, they're sort of measuring the, um, the basically the sound, effectively pressure waves oscillating inside the sun. And these are frequencies of like five minutes. They mm. can map the uh, a lot of the density structures and things inside the sun. Still don't understand how it all works. The magnetic, in its interaction with the magnetic field is very complicated. So it's uh, still... Still a mystery uh, how a lot mm. of it functions. And we don't really know what might happen if a uh, Carrington-sized event did hit us. A um, few more wires around now. <laughs> yeah, there are, aren't there? <laughs> uh, we discussed this, and Nirmal Nair, computer and electrical engineering, this is kind of a specialist subject. He calls it one of his um, black swans. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, what might happen, and how would we recover? Uh, it's bigger than those ones that hit North America in the 80s and created some blackouts and that's right there was like northeastern that. United States yeah. uh, a lot of power plants went down and yeah. uh, blacked out New York City they had a huge burst of crime mm. in the darkness of yeah. at the time and so on so yeah they these can have pervasive effects on society yeah and they get bigger than that and that's what we're talking about after oh, between 10 o'clock and 11 all righty uh, on to oh there's another um, link we have there. The Eagle Nebula. I've never seen... It's a famous Hubble picture, iconic, isn't it? Yeah, it's, iconic, yeah. It's, it's really probably one of Hubble's most iconic pictures. They 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 uh, titled it The Pillars of Creation, which is yeah. quite an emotive term for it, but it shows a star-forming region, huge great clouds of hydrogen, helium uh, and dust that's uh, currently bra- you know, collapsing down to form new stars. And uh, we've seen the pictures from the outside. Now this is a picture taken using infrared, which actually looks inside the dust cloud. So it shows a much better idea of these new stars that are forming inside. So if you look, to look at this new picture and compare it with the earlier one, which is more visible types of light that our eyes can see, mm. uh, you can see there's a big difference. It's still spectacular. As a Rorschach test, it looks like two dinosaurs, a big dinosaur shaking hands with a small dinosaur, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's bizarre though, isn't it? 
Okay, major dust storm on Mars. We have some equipment on Mars, don't we? And this is uh, one of the worst things to happen to them, other than just getting stuck in a sand dune. But uh, this, it's we know dust storms happen on Mars, and um, this seems like a big one. Yeah, this is a biggie. Uh, the opportunities little opportunity that's been on Mars and crawling around since I think 2005 has uh, now it's it's closed itself down it's just in hibernation mode waiting to uh, till the dust clears but basically the cloud uh, where it is the the sky is so clouded by dust that virtually no sunlight's getting to the surface at all it would be like dark really dark and uh, so it's shut down and every you know every sort of little while it sort of uh, you know wakes up and says, you know, hello, you know, can I do anything yet? If not, just go back to sleep again. Because basically once the sun starts shining on it, it's, its solar panels will start to recharge its battery and, and so it's monitoring its battery level. And uh, when it's in hibernation, all it's keeping running is its clock, which reminds its alarm, wakes it up and mm. it checks out. So basically it's th like that. Curiosity uh, is in a different part of, the, the, of Mars and it's it's sort of sort of there's a lot of dust around there but it's not as dense yet and so pictures are coming back from curiosity showing before and after pictures of where it's looking and you can see that the you know there's quite a there's dust in the atmosphere there it's it's more opaque uh, but it's not not as dense as where opportunity is but it's something covers about 50 percent of the surface of mars at the present time could expand up and include the entire surface as happened like in 2001 oh. so these global uh, sort of cloud uh, storms on Mars are a sort of a recurrent feature um, and they occur most commonly when Mars is close to the at its closest point to the Sun there's more energy in the atmosphere at that point and, and once you start kicking dust up on Mars it uh, has an, it sort of has a chain reaction essentially it starts to um, change the temperature of Mars and it becomes a you know um, it, it, it helps maintain the stuff longer and also the dust particles are very fine the atmosphere is very thin and so um, yeah it can take months to clear yeah uh, because the atmosphere is thin, I, you might find it surprising that there are dust storms at all, but I suppose, oh, there's less gravity. That's right, there's less gravity. That's a sort of big factor. And I say the particles are very small right, too. Yeah, yeah. Martian dust is very fine, right. um, probably more like the moon yeah. has very fine dust too, just gets into everything. So, uh, yeah, so, and, yeah, it's, a, it's not, I don't think, you know, even you know, people who know a lot about the Martian atmosphere, fully understand the, all the dynamics, they just wait until these things happen, but mm. they seem to start off in basins on Mars, or like a deep crater or something like that, you get a bit of a, a spiral wind effect going on, and that starts to blow the dust up, and then, then it sort of starts to propagate across the whole planet. Right, and I wonder about opportunity, what a battler it's been, it's um, companion spirit Yes, died in battle. Yeah, I know, it's and it's quite emotive. I mean, I can see, is. I can see the tears. Yeah. right now. Yeah, <laughs> and opportunity. Could it be that they go to check it out and it's actually half buried in dust? It's not a golden retriever. It can't shake this stuff off. No, 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 it can't. And 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 you know, I mean, at the moment, it's a total open question as whether it'll, um, you know you know, come back oh. as well. But at the moment, I mean, you see, when it comes. 
when the, the dust clears and there could be so much dust on its solar panels it can't yeah. get enough electricity to kick itself up. So it's still an open question. I mean, what's happened before is sometimes that winds come up and it's blown the dust off and that's cleared them in mm. the past, both mm. those craft. But opportunity... Um, um, Curiosity has got a, uh, a nuclear power source, so it's not reliant on no, panels. It'll be all right. Um, and on the Mars subject, we'll talk about Mars in the coming weeks a bit more, I'm sure. But the important thing to remember, it's going to be big and bright. Uh, the second brightest from our perspective towards Earth, uh, from Earth, uh, as from from the last sixty thousand years, is that yeah, right? Yeah, well, it's it's very close. It'll be uh, the, in two thousand one, the two thousand, uh, bigger pardon, the two thousand three opposition of Mars. Uh, Mars came and Earth came closer together than they'd been in sixty thousand years. Their orbits are not circular, so it just it's just a fluky uh, thing of geometry. So, um, so that's about fifty seven million kilometres or so Ooh. is the closest approach. This one is within 3% of that, so this opposition will still nearly be as good as the 2003 opposition. And crucially from New Zealand's point of view is that you know, Mars will be high in our sky during the opposition time. If you're in the northern hemisphere, Mars is always low down in the sky. You're looking through a lot of atmosphere, you don't get as good a view. So our latitude in the southern hemisphere, uh, provided the clouds stay away, yeah. <laughs> Earth's clouds, yeah. uh, we will get a great view of it. And the opposition, you don't have to see it on the day of the opposition, the 27th of July. Any time within a few weeks either side of that, you're still going to get the best view of your lifetime, probably, in seeing Mars. And it's not just notional or for astronomers with a telescope. To the naked eye, it will look oh, all it, bright. It, it looks bright. It'll be, it's already very prominent now. It's sort of, uh, if you get up at sort of at uh, 11 in the evening and look out in the east, you'll see a very bright sort of reddy orangey color but of course this the the dust in the atmosphere changes its color a bit it makes it a slightly more yellowy it moves it from being the red of the sort of you're seeing on the mm. where we're seeing the, the actual surface of mars when you're seeing the dust cloud contaminating the light it sort of takes on a sort of slightly less red view so mm. but it's still the brightest object in that part of the sky Okay, well, that'll be interesting. Uh, you're actually looking at the dust storm we've been talking about. Yeah, you can sort of get a hint of it. I mean, you. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you're. You know, it's not going to scream dust at you, but it will be subtly yeah. uh, less red than it would normally be. Okay, it's a big time for asteroids and going to uh, see what they're made of and having a sniff at them with man-made equipment. Good heavens, um, what a festival of asteroidness. Yeah, I, I was, you know, sort of wrote a bit about this last year, and uh, but uh, so Japan launched its Hayabusa 2 satellite, uh, which is a uh, follow-on from Hayabusa 1, which uh, went to a, a different asteroid, uh, had a great story attached to that, but this is their second shot at sending a spacecraft to rendezvous with an asteroid. And uh, so Hayabusa 2 is now actually has arrived at uh, Ryugu, I think is possibly the pronunciation of its satellite, the, uh, the asteroid it's reached. Mm -hmm. um, they ha it's only sort of like between half and one kilometre across. It's actually a very small body, smaller than that comet that, uh, um, that Comet 67P that, uh, that the ESA landed the mm -hmm. little lander on. So the tiny weak gravity of these things makes them very difficult to get hold of. So you have to approach them very, very carefully, very slowly till the weak gravity catches it and you can get into orbit around the thing. Um, Hayabusa 2 can, has got a couple, has got about three landers, I think, on board and they're going to be dropped onto the surface at different times with different functions. Three? 
Yeah, yeah. So if you go all that way and get to all that trouble, you might as well take three. I mean, a couple mm. of them might not work. So, mm. <laughs> right, right. you know, and uh, so the objective is to go actually land these things onto the surface after mapping it and figuring out the best place to go. They'll drop these things down over a period of the next uh, year or so. Um, and a couple of them at least have got the capacity to launch off the surface bringing samples with them and those samples were returned to earth and i think they arrived back on earth about 2020 oh. i think is the uh, projected date to get those samples back now these both these craft the one that nasa's going to and the one that japan is going to um are chosen for their their really primitive asteroids they're things that are thought to have predated the formation of the planets so they are known to be rich in organic material um sort of stuff that you know, it forms between the stars, hasn't been sort of melted and reprocessed by the heat of the sun or anything like that. These are sort of like a, a time capsule, if you like, of, of the, you know, the, the material that the, the sun and the, our planet's formed out of. So uh, scientists are very interested in the chemical composition to see whether there's amino acids and organic material that could have been the precursors of life that, uh, you know, got life started on Earth in the first place. So these are very important scientific but you, stuff, but they, they can look at the spectrum of the light reflecting off these things, but it's quite a different matter to grab a chunk and bring it back. And although Hayabusa 1 managed to creak back to Earth mm. with a sample, we were talking, I think, micrograms of material it managed just to... Just a bit of dust on its yeah, shoes, it just, uh, basically. Yeah, that's right. It, it wasn't um, enough to really do a lot of science. I haven't seen a lot mm. from it. But Hayabusa 2 is intended to bring back uh, more and uh, so it's a, a very exciting thing so um, so over the next uh, little while it's going to be um, you know getting close I think it's uh, currently the last I saw it was 200 kilometers from its asteroid slowly oh. creeping in towards it and uh, it should be up to within I think about 20 kilometers uh, is its objective yeah. Uh, yeah. to get into orbit around it and that'll be sort of late June. So Must be tricky getting in a into, week or so. into orbit with something with the gravity of a Volkswagen. Well, that's right. I mean, it's... it's And these aren't... Uh, the, these bodies are not super dense. They're not like a solid rock that's yeah. that size. They're not like a chunk of basalt or something. These are quite um, soft, uh, delicate structures and don't have a lot of gravity. No, no. Okay. Oh, so does, a, has it got a camera on it? Can we have a look at it? Yeah, no, there's pictures. I oh, haven't okay. seen any okay. good pictures. It's still a way away from the the object yet. But once it gets close, they're going to be imaging it and mapping it in detail right. to figuring out where they want to drop these landers onto it to get their samples from. Right. And there will be possibly sort of impact craters, so... You know, I'm not expecting, not like on the moon or okay. something, because the moon's a much more solid sort of object. It'll be, they'll be more subtle than that. I've heard it looks really asteroidy. And the Osiris Rex one, which is the NASA one, its uh, its uh, arrival is uh, expected to be, I think, in August, mm -hmm. which is coming up on us now. It's um, it's uh, going to an asteroid called Bennu. Uh, again, the same thing, looking for it's a primitive asteroid um, and NASA's going to spend a lot more time of some years orbiting it and mapping it in detail oh. uh, um, before then getting a sample and uh, heading back with it. So, mm. Okay, some of the biggest, one of the biggest headlines in astronomy recently has been this neutron star that we could actually observe. It's been thought that this happens, but uh, neutron stars uh, getting so close together they spin around and merge and create a big fat what? Because uh, neutron stars are made of stuff you cannot imagine. Um, it's, 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 it's the guts of an atom the size of 
um, Auckland City. That's right. Yeah. So these are the sort of aftermath of a supernova explosion, the remnant core. Um, They haven't quite got enough density to get to a black hole. They're not quite massive enough. But when you get two of them merging, which is what was observed uh, with the gravitational wave detections famously uh, last year, um, that was the first time that had ever been seen. Uh, It solved a whole lot of problems and or confirmed a lot of theories in physics and uh, probably rejected some others. But... um, it, uh, it, it, it formed some new object and the question was, was that object that was left behind after those two neutron stars merged, was it a neutron star, heavy neutro- a heavier neutron star, or was it a black hole? And now the astronomers who have st- been studying it, the remnants uh, or the result of that have now concluded it pretty much has to be a black hole. Um, it would be, I mean, both those neutron stars were one about 1.5 and point three solar masses each so um and it's a big unknown as how massive a neutron star can be you know they can't be much more massive than about three times the mass of the sun otherwise we definitely have a black hole mm-hmm. i mean the physics requires that but at the moment the heaviest known neutron stars probably around the 2.3 times the mass of the sun and so it's just a big open question so this thing here would have been if, it, if you combine those two bits it would have made it a 2.7 times the mass of the sun which is makes it you know pretty darn heavy and 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 you know we don't have any physical theory for the interior of a neutron star that's still being kicked around i Mm. mean the large hadron collider and all that sort of stuff is trying to probe the fundamental physics of what happens when you crush matter to that level of density um just prior to becoming a black hole but uh so this way the thing that merged must have been uh, it was too heavy and so they have anyway concluded that what is left behind now is a new black hole mm. uh, from that neutron star merger. Because they've looked at it and they're not getting any light back from it. That's right. I mean, a neutron star still puts out light um, and there's still radiation coming from it and, and some of them can be put out radio signal or stuff as well because they're spinning and producing radio waves. Mm. Um, they've often got a very strong magnetic field. So they, they do produce what we'd say is electromagnetic radiation, but a black hole by definition produces none of that Mm. so uh, and at the moment all attempts to see any sign of any electromagnetic radiation consistent with a neutron star there has come to nothing and uh, they're now pretty safe in saying it's a black hole it was formed okay now lastly china they're going to land something on the dark side of the moon what are they up to yeah this was quite exciting i mean uh, you don't get a lot of news what about... are they trying to hide <laughs> well you know a couple of years ago they landed uh, a little craft uh, a crawler thing on the surface of the moon and it worked for a little while uh, it, it, uh, sent back signals, very nice high-definition pictures mm. and so on from the surface. It was their first crack um, at landing something and soft landing it on the moon. That was a great effort. Uh, but now they've uh, just you know, launched a new project and that is to put a, a, a sort of a, a souped-up version and they're going to land it on the back side of the moon, the side that we don't see uh, and uh, often called the dark side, but of course it's no more dark than the side that we see, but the back side, the side that faces away from the Earth. Um, and there's a whole lot of interesting things about that. It's not really explored very well. It's mapped by satellites now. We've got detailed maps of the entire surface of the moon from from orbit but getting down there and sampling the material and stuff is uh, is has not been done before so that's the objective of this project uh they've already launched their uh precursor satellite that'll go into orbit because you can't talk to a 
crawler on the surface of the mm. moon if it's on the other side of the moon because the radio waves can't get there. So first you have to put a satellite into orbit beyond the moon mm. so that it can talk to the, see the backside of the moon and see the Earth. Mm. So basically that, that satellite's on its way and it's being getting into position what's called the second Lagrangian point. It's a, it's a stable orbital point um, out there uh, beyond the moon. Um, and so it's going to have a big antenna and then they're sending the, uh, the, 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 the lander is going to go there, hopefully successfully soft land on the surface. It's got all sorts of scientific stuff on board to do experiments, um, imagery. The standard bucket and spade. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's it's you know, we don't know much really. I mean, in spite of the Apollo and all those things, you know, there's still a huge amount we don't know uh, about the moon's origin and details and stuff. And right. so each experiment's showing new stuff. So if this is successful, it'll be very good. And so that little thing on the surface will be able to talk to the the satellite beyond, and that satellite will transmit the stuff back to Earth. So that'll be uh, very interesting to see how that. Uh, gets on. All right. Uh, Grant, fascinating stuff as always. Uh, good seeing and uh, we'll speak to you again next week. Yeah, thanks, Graham. Oh, oh yes, yeah, sorry. And the reminder, uh, what might happen uh, if we had one of those really big coronal mass ejections? Is it, is it the right name? Yeah, I'll it, be listening. It? I'll be listening. I'll be very fascinated to hear that. What might happen? Because uh, we haven't had one in the modern age of electricity, but there is pretty good... Uh, evidence that a massive one <laughs> did hit us in 1859 called the Carrington event and melted stuff. Well, just think, if your power goes off for like 24 hours, it's bad news. You imagine it out for like six months or a year mm. and what would happen to the uh, control of society. <laughs> <laughs> no radio light. <laughs> At least about profits. <laughs> Just a reminder, there's a link to those pictures and things on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. And I encourage you, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless Facebook page. You'll get updates during the week and there's a nice little community uh, there. You can ask questions of uh, all sorts of people, including Max Cryer, who will be up in the next hour.